Okay. This morning we're gonna I'm gonna read from Isaiah the fortieth chapter. And Isaiah forty, the fortieth chapter is it, it goes very beautifully with Romans the seventh and eighth chapters. So Roman uh, Isaiah forty verse one says in verse one, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak to the heart, speak, speak to the heart comfortably. Speak to the heart of, of Jerusalem, the individuals, and cry unto her that her warfare, or in other words, her appointed time is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So what this is teaching here again is in terms of Israel, and we can look back and learn from this, what he's teaching here is that God had to doubly, really bring in unbelievable chastisement just so he could bless her and bless, and that's what God does. Just what it takes for him to get the will submitted to him is, is amazing. What it takes God to separate self-conscious thinking and thoughts that are not of God that become attached to the will, what does he have to do to break that? This is what he's revealing here. Verse 3, it says, Then the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert, the desert place, where you believe that there isn't much going on. It seems like it's ruined. It seems like that in, in the sense of our own thoughts and our own thinking that God where he has me is a desert place and seems as though at times he's deserted me. But he says, in that particular place, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And a highway is a way to live above while you're in the desert, but to live above with him. Every valley will be exalted. Every place that he has humbled us it, and, and where does he do that? It says, it says in the wilderness. And where are we? We're in the world. We're in the world system. And that's what the wilderness is. We are in the world in John 17 and verse 16, but we are not of the world, meaning any measure of our thinking has nothing to do with the way that all the rest of the world, the herd mentality under Satan, thinks. But yet if we don't submit our will, and have God's thoughts, and have the actual sense of grace, then we go right back to thinking just like the rest. We begin to live apart from our life that Christ is experientially, and we begin to think that life is just made up of the details in life, our circumstances and our situations, and we do the best that we can just to get by. But the voice says that every valley will be exalted. Every place that we're humbled in 1 Peter 5, 6 and James 4, 6, every place where the valley, every valley will be exalted and every mountain, the height of pride, the height of pride, the height of self-conscious thinking, 
thoughts that don't have to do with who God has made us to be in the Son of His love, who is really the measure of the sense of our grace. He's the only thing. He's the only one that makes any sense in our life. To think outside of Him, nothing makes any sense. And so every mountain, every mountain, the height of arrogance, and every hill, pride, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall will be made low, every hill, and the crooked will be made what? Straight, straight. It will be a straight place. In other words, there won't be any bends in the experience where God has to deal with pride and arrogance. It'll be a straight place when he's humbled us, and that straight place becomes a place where his love can flow freely. Nothing's interfering with it. And so he makes it, he makes the crooked straight or a plain place, and the rough places he makes very, very plain or a place where he, where everything becomes equal. See, nothing becomes equal outside of God's eyes. Nothing, nothing. And what I mean by that is, is that he has given us his son by the power of the Holy Spirit because the only way that God thinks is has to do with what is equal between him and his son and, of course, with the Holy Spirit who flows and is one with both. And so, verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed in all flesh. Every single human being will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the voice said, cry, the voice cry. And who is the voice? Well, of course it is in John 1, in verse 1, it is the word. If you have a, have a word, you must have a voice and a proper expression. And so the voice here is really referring to, to Christ, and the voice is the full thought of God. God doesn't have another thought towards any human being outside of his Son. So verse 6 says, the voice said, cry, the voice we know, and the voice that, that, that through the power of the Holy Spirit as he takes the word and shows it unto us, shows us the area where we're not functioning in the voice. And the voice there in John 10, 3, we see John chapter 10, verse 3 and 14 and 27 in, that, in those verses in that chapter, the voice is our shepherd. So it's either the voice of God, Jesus Christ, who is the word, directing us with our will submitted to him so that we know which path we should take and which one we shouldn't take. And so when we hear that voice, the voice says, cry, cry out, speak out. And he said, well, what should I cry and speak out? That all flesh is grass. All thinking outside of Jesus Christ, anything outside of him, is like grass. And all the goodness thereof, which there isn't any in the flesh, in Romans 7, 18, in John 6, 63, all flesh thereof is, and all the goodness thereof is, what? As the flower of the field. Oh, how beautiful it can be made. And in a second, it's gone. The grass, in verse 7, withers, the flower fades. But the Spirit of the Lord 
because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, and that's what we do. We wither when we think outside of Christ. When we think outside the sense of grace, nothing makes any sense, and we begin to wither. Proverbs 24 and verse 9 says that the thought of foolishness is sin. And if we faint in the, in the day of adversity, in, in Proverbs 24 and verse 10, it's because we have a small soul. We, we become withered. And the word of God doesn't fit. It doesn't fit in natural thinking because it takes the grace of God to think properly, to have a proper sense. But yet if, if I'm not humbled and my will is not submitted, I have a very small soul. And a small soul there is, the small soul there is, and maybe I'm rich, maybe I have everything, but it's all about myself. And it's very small. My world becomes very, very, very small. My own thinking has to do with me. There's no room for God and there's no room for anyone else. And so we faint in the day of adversity because our, because our souls are very small experientially. We have a huge capacity in Christ in our position, but is he my proper experience through a proper sense of grace? Well, the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of our God will stand forever. It's the only thing that stands the test. O Zion that brings good tidings, get up into the high mountain. Get up into the presence of God. See, because when soon as we get outside, any of us, the moment we get outside the presence of God, instantly we lose the sense of grace. We go about on our own, and by the time and, and usually it's too late, never too late for him to redeem us and to bring us back, never too late for us to confess the sin in First John 1, 9, but it can take a long time to get back to, to right thinking with our will submitted. O Zion, that brings good tidings, get up into the high mountain, the high mountain. High mountain here, if we think of the preponderance of the scriptures in Song of Solomon 4 and verse 7, it says, you are all fair, my love. God's thoughts about us and Christ is you are all fair. You're beautiful. You're all set. Everything, everything is done in Christ. That's who you are. And he's training us to understand that in our experience based upon our position. So he says in Song of Solomon 4 and verse 7, and by the way, Song of Solomon, that whole thing brings out the beauty and the purity of Jesus Christ, period. It's just not some some theological treaties about Jews and how they operated, although some would teach it that way. All scripture has to do with Christ because he's the word in John 1 and verse 1. So, again, get up to the high mountain because that's what he says. So when I think in the sense of God, when I think, when I think with a sense of grace in Christ, I'm thinking in the presence of God. And when I'm in the presence of God, what do I see? I see I'm all fair. There's no spot in me. In Song of Solomon 4, 7. Then he gets me to look from the top, the high mountain, where he is governing us. And that's what it speaks of. The mountains here speak of his presence and how he governs on earth. Now, our position, obviously, is the church of, of Jesus Christ, the very church, the body, the bride, all synonymous terms. 
all synonymous realities in the Word of God. We are that. And He governs us when our will is submitted. But where does He govern us? He governs us from on high. The only people right now in this particular dispensation, which is the dispensation of the church age, the dispensation of grace, is He can only govern from heaven because we have to remember once he flooded the whole earth, as we've been taught in Genesis chapters 8 and 9, after he flooded it, after that, he withdrew his presence from the earth, and he operates from heaven. And that is why even when he begins to operate on the earth again in the millennial reign, it is us with Christ coming back from heaven to rule on earth. See, all our thoughts have to do with a sense of grace. And that's where Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, seated there, and, and where he rules and where he reigns. And where, furthermore, where Christ in his present session right now is, and some had asked me, I had a, I had a man ask a question, and there's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with being ignorant. It just means we simply don't know. But this, this particular man was a pastor, had been teaching, and he was in his 60s, and asked the question one time here, asked the question, what is Jesus Christ doing right now in heaven? The Bible makes it clear he's interceding for us. In Romans 8 and verse 34, in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, and in Hebrews 9 and verse 24, that's what he's doing right now. He's interceding for us. And he never thinks about us outside of how he thinks about himself. And he only, and God only, as he sees his son seated at his, at his right hand, sees him in all the purity of who he is. And that's how he sees us. How do we see ourselves? It's very critical because that's why it says to keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life in Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Because in Proverbs 23 and verse 7, as a man thinks, you see proper thinking? As a man thinks in his mind, so is he. In 23.7 of Proverbs. So he says here in, in, in Isaiah 40 verse 9, O Zion, that brings good tidings, get up high, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that brings good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. As long as we behold him and our sight is him through the sense of grace and his sight of, of us is in Christ and in nothing else, then we will give the sacrifice of praise in Hebrews 13 and verse 15. We will not be afraid. When we are occupied in the, with the sense of grace in Christ, the very son of his love where he's placed us, is there any fear in love? No, in 1 John 4 and verse 18, there's no fear in love because fear that, uh, because love that's completed everything about us and our own individuality in Christ cast out fear because in 2 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear. And remember, fear is a spirit. It's a demonic spirit looking to actuate in the experience of the believer. Can't touch the position. We're untouchable. 1 John 5, 18b, the wicked one can't touch our position, so he certainly will go after our experience. And that has to do, 
And that's what makes it so important for the submission of our will. And no matter what, no matter what, God is for me. He's nothing but for me. And that's a, that's a, that's a foundational fact on which we should rest because that's where God rests. In Romans 8, verse 37, we're more than conquerors, meaning there's nothing left to conquer. We're more than conquerors. And so he says this, and he's speaking this, behold your God. Now, they won't do that as a nation until Christ comes back and sets up the millennial kingdom on the earth. Verse 10, it says, behold, the Lord will come with strong hand. That always speaks of grace. God can only reveal the strength of who he is and the strength of his son through grace because no one deserves to get a single thing from God because it only comes from him as a proper source. And so it says that he comes with a strong hand and his arm will rule for him. His arm, and this is speaking of millennial reign, his arm is Christ himself. It's not shortened that it cannot save or can't help in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. But the thing that separates us as Christians now, the thing that separates us experientially from the sense of grace, which would be the power and wisdom of his strength, is sin. Our own will, active. And then it says, Behold, his reward is with him. And his work, his work before him. Notice that? Verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead those that are with young. That's that, those that are with young, those that give suck, those that, it's like, like a mom with a little baby. He's going to tenderly lead them. And this all is, yes, this is pointing to millennial reign. This is pointing to what's going to happen in Revelations, the 19th chapter, to precede that, dealing with all the enemies, when then in Revelations 23 and 4, he sets up his kingdom. But this is what it's, but it's teaching us truth, teaching us truth that we can look back on in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 11. We can look back and learn things about how God would deal with the nation of Israel and deal with individuals. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs with his arm, carry them in his bosom, and will gently lead those that are with young. Verse 12, here we go. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heavens with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who did all of that? Where were you and I? Where was anybody when this was being done by Jesus Christ the Son in his pre-incarnate state, who literally is the one that is our Savior? He was doing all of this. How powerful is he? How powerful is he? How powerful are his thoughts towards me? And how weak and frail and evil are our thoughts outside of his thoughts about his father, about himself, about us, and about others. Especially, oh, how the enemy, when he can get a place in the individual Christian to function in a thought that's against them, and oh, how he can open up in them thoughts about other Christians 
and, and, and will counsel them and tell, the enemy will counsel them and tell them how others think about them. And they believe a lie. Something that's opposed to the truth of who Christ is. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or has, who has ever been his counselor? How do we counsel God? Can we, can we counsel God outside of the sense of grace? Can we? Oh, we do. And you know how we usually counsel him? With doubt, with fear, with irritation, with suspicion. Has God made you suspicious of someone lately? Made you suspicious of someone? If he did that in any of us, it was because I lost the sense of grace and I lost the sense of his presence because in his presence, okay, there's joy in Psalm 16, 11. And if there's joy, it's, it's, it's because we're in his presence and God is love. And that's what that releases. And in his love, there is no suspicion. And his love can only flow through grace. And in grace, there's never any irritation. Have we been irritated lately? Have we been suspicious lately? Have you had it with certain individuals <laughs> that are in Christ? Well, who's, who's directed the Spirit of the Lord or been his counselor or has taught him? God, you don't know. You have no idea. Oh, he doesn't. Sure, he doesn't. You don't know. Oh, he does. It's that you don't know. It's that I wouldn't know. Who taught him? With whom did he take counsel? Who? And who made him understand things? God, you don't realize what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like. Oh, oh, his son. Oh, his son knows what it's like. No one has ever hated more, gone through more, physically, mentally, emotionally abused than Jesus Christ, ever. Furthermore, he took all of that abuse, all of that irritation, all of that suspicion, all of that hatred, that our sins and the sins of others that had an effect on us, he took that all on himself on Calvary and dealt with it and made us more than conquerors. With whom took he counsel? Who taught him? Who counseled him? And taught him in the path of judgment. And taught him knowledge. And showed to him the way of understanding. The way of understandings. Behold, and here we go. Even dealing with the nations. Even dealing with the nations now. In prophecy. You know what? The nations are as a drop of a bucket. You get a bucket. Get a bucket. And a little tiny drop. That's what it amounts to in his presence, in his power, in his strength, in his ruling and reigning. The nations are a drop as a bucket and are counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the isles as a very little thing, all the powers. And Lebanon, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. And they use the wood to, to, and they laid it on the altar and would put sacrifice sacrifices and burnt offerings to please him. And this is what he said. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. All the trees in all of Israel are not sufficient to burn enough, nor the beasts, the sacrifices, thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. They were only types in Leviticus, the first chapter in the fourth verse. They were only types. 
Just those were the types, like the ark in Genesis chapters 8 and 9. It was only a, it was only a type. They all pointed to Christ. Every single one of them. All those sacrifices. Verse 17, all nations, including our nation. Jeez, oh, God help us. God help those individuals that need to be saved, that need to get into and receive Christ and be a member of the body of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27 so that they will be ultimately delivered. Where even if they die once, in Christ, death has no more dominion in Romans 6, verse 9. God forbid, because that's what he's doing and that's all he's doing now. All nations before him are as what? Nothing. What, are, what is the sense of my thinking outside the sense of his grace? Does it have to do with love? No. Any thought that I have, 1 Corinthians 13, without love, what? It profits me what? Where's the profit? Even with the blessings that God gives us, the material blessings at times that we hoard to ourselves and never give back to him, even those become as nothing. Why? Because it's without love. And I don't experience love without the sense of grace. And God only gives grace to those whose wills have been submitted to him on a continual and constant basis. So all nations before him there is nothing, and without love it profits me nothing. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 5, and through. And they are as counted to him less than nothing and vanities completely. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. You can get all the material things you can have, and without him, what do they profit you? Vanity, vanity, said the preacher. In Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 and 2, everything outside of Christ, and you can see that by the time you get to the end of Ecclesiastes in the 12th chapter and read verses 9 through 13. It all has to do with the Word of God, proper thinking with proper sense. That's what it has to do with. They're counted less than nothing in vanity. Verse 18, well then, to whom will, notice the will, <laughs> you liken God. And what likeness will you compare him to? To the blessings that he gives you? To the material things that he gives you that we've become so occupied with? Who are you going to compare him to? And then when those blessings go, now what do you have? Is God still God? Are you still positioned in him? Are you still on your way to heaven? And the moment that you should take your last breath, you would instantly be absent from the body and present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. That will do away with the nonsensical teaching of soul sleep. Like when a believer dies, like the Seventh-day Adventists and other groups will teach that the soul sleeps for a time. Well, the scriptures go right against that. The workman melts a graven image. You see that? He's going to make something that's pleasing to him. Why? Because in some area, Christ isn't enough. He's going to make and melt a graven image. And the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and, oh, casts silver chains. All because they're miserable and they're lacking Christ experientially. And so they need all these things to replace him. 
Verse 20, he that is so impoverished, so poor, that he has no oblation, chooses a tree that will rot. (laughs) See, making a choice that has nothing to do with the sense of grace, nothing to do with eternity, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with really who he is in me and who I am in him. I choose a tree that will rot. Oh, the beautiful things that we can make with trees. Oh, the beautiful house. Oh, the beautiful whatever. Do everything we can because we're so troubled experientially that we have to settle down in the world and make things so comfortable for us so it won't have an effect on us when all the time God is bringing in the trial to separate us from that thing that we begin to cling to. By the way, by the time Christ comes back, you're going to see in Isaiah 2 and verse 20, even the gold and silver, people are going to take their gold and silver and run into the caves. And then they're going to realize that that's not going to save them. They even throw it to the bats and to the moles. Here. I don't know. Did you ever see, did you ever see a bat or a mold or an animal clinging to gold and silver? Did you ever see any humans doing that? Oh, God, do you ever see any of us in Christ doing that? God forbid. No, you don't have Christ, the sense of grace, who you truly are. You're going to choose something else, and you know what? It's a tree that will rot. He that seeks, that seeks unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image. If I can't do it, I'm going to go get it from someone else. And will not be moved. Well, verse 21, haven't you known? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? And maybe certain things in our Christian life weren't told us from the beginning. But boy, is God redeeming the time, and he wants to begin to rule and reign in our experience in a pure sense of reality through a pure sense of grace. You can't mix anything with grace because it's the undeserved, unmerited kindness and favor of God toward a completely unworthy objects who have nothing in themselves. Nothing to give. But when, that, when we receive that grace and that love flows through and brings us in and gives us the means to actually obey, we actually are able to return his love to him. What an amazing thing. And that is what fellowship is. It's a, it's a group of believers. In Matthew 16 and 18, verse 20, Matthew 18, verse 20, which where two or three are gathered together. It's the quality of the life in the believers, not the number of Christians that get together that, that spell out success, by the way. It has nothing to do with it. Furthermore, that's what we're coming down to. Two or three. Two or three. Have you not to- hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? What does he mean by that? Well, he just told us. Even when, you weren't, even when you hadn't existed in yourself yet, you did in my mind, God says, but you hadn't yet. I was doing all this preparation, and I'm making it known to you right now. <laughs> I'm making all this known. Verse 22, it is he that sits upon the circle of the earth. You know, in Columbus Day, you know, they thought that the earth was square. Did you know that? All they had to do was read the Bible. They thought if they went so far in the ocean, and if they went too far, they'd fall right off. 
Do you know? Look, isn't it simple? Simple truth. It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof as grasshoppers. He stretched out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. See, that's what he was doing in, in Genesis chapter 1, in verses 3 through 31, preparing it for you and I, for, for, for Adam and for all of us who came from him, as is brought out in Acts 17, verse 26 through 28. And so, he, he, a tent to dwell in, that brings the princes to naught, those that think they rule without him, those that think they don't need him. And as soon as we get out of the presence of God, forget, we become our own prince, or so we think. We're the arbiter of our own lives. We're in control. And God forbid if we're not. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> the cross forbids it in Galatians 6 and verse 14. That brings the princes to nothing that make the judges, those rules of the earth, as vanity. Vanity. The prince is to nothing, he says. He has to bring us in areas in our life when we're not thinking with the sense of grace and his love. He has to bring us to the point of self-helplessness and hopelessness. Nothing in ourselves. Because without him in John 15 and verse 5, we can do nothing. But with him, I can. In Philippians 4 and verse 13, do all things through him which makes me mighty, which gives me the strength of his grace and his power and his love. Yea, they will not be planted. They'll never be secure. They don't have even, most Christians, even though they're positioned in Christ, don't even know that the foundation is prepared and don't have anything to build on because they feel they have to do something through false teaching. They must do something. And now God won't do this because I did that when we're already positioned in him. And so, yea, they will, be, they will not be planted that think outside of him. We are planted in Christ positionally. Yea, they will not be sown. Not only will they not be blessed experientially, but they won't get the most incredible blessing that God could use them to bless others because their minds no longer on themselves and their problems and the things that they go through. No, no, they know they're only passing through in 1 Peter 2, 11 as strangers and pilgrims. They're just passing through. They're passing through to their land of Canaan, their land, all the promises in 2 Corinthians 1, 20. No, they will not be sown. Yea, their stock will not take root in the earth. In other words, whatever I take to myself apart from Christ, you think, you think you're going to keep it. You best read Psalm 39 and verses 5 and 6. You don't even know who, you know, by the time you could be the richest person in the world and you may think you're leaving it to certain people. You have no idea. You are not taking it with you. Their stock will take, their stock will not take root in the earth and he will blow upon them and they will wither. He blows upon the area that we're functioning in the flesh and it withers, thank God. Remember what the, the husband does, the gardener? When it says in John 15 and verse 3, you are now clean through the word that I've spoken unto you. The word is like a knife in Hebrews 4.12 and it cuts out areas where we have been withered and functioned that way for years. He cuts it. 
Ooh, I didn't like that word. Ooh, that was a sharp word. Ooh, I didn't like what that person said. Ooh, I didn't like that. And we can still go like this and still not like it in here. Very interesting. Precisely interesting. Well, again, they, the, and they will wither. Thank God he does that. The husbandman, the one that really, and we're his garden. He cuts areas off. And you ask any gardener, we brought this up recently, you cut a dead limb off of a tree, the part that's rotted, right? then instantly life can flow now. And then there's fruit produced in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And we can even bring forth fruit in our old age in Psalm 92 and verse 14. And old could be there were decades where I didn't have truth. In that sense, it's old. But in our old age, we can bring forth fruit because our fruit in Hosea 14 verse 8 is from him. So as we begin to close this out this morning, he says that he will blow upon them. Blow upon them. You see what that is? How am I to understand this? Don't we know that in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know what inspiration means? It's breathed out. All scripture is inspired, breathed out by God and is profitable. Not for those that resist it. Not for those, for those that come and receive. Whether it is one or two. The word, God's not going to hold back what he would desire to give to thousands just because one or two show up. He's willing to, and he will pour it out. He will pour it out. To those that, are, that tremble at his word, in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, he'll pour it out without measure. Based upon Romans 5 and verse 5, the love of God is poured out without measure. All you have to do is come. Not like certain teachings say, clean your hands first and purify your hearts, you sinners, then draw near to God, then he'll draw near to you. It doesn't say that. It says in James 4, 8, draw near to God, result, he'll draw near to you. What's that? Submit. Come, here, submit. Don't try and figure it out yourself like multitudes are doing. Don't resist God's way. Don't resist it because you're resisting God. And if you don't like God's choice, you're resisting God because God knows what he's doing and the choices that he, make, he makes has to do with his nature, his character, and his essence. And if it has to do with his nature and character and essence, then is it essential then for us to know the essence, nature, and character of God? Because can I know who I am? And so again here, as we begin to close this out, they begin to wither. Shrink back. One quit. And the whirlwind will take them away as stubble. The whirlwind, the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, 2, the enemy. Areas where we haven't grown. That's what's brought up at the Bema seat in 1 Corinthians 3.13-15. Wood, hay, wood, humanity, thoughts apart from, from God, apart from Christ, apart from the sense of grace. Wood, hey, emotions. Because I have bad emotions, I've had bad thoughts, I get explosive, and maybe I don't reveal it outwardly. 
But even the thought of it, in Matthew 5 and verse 28, even the thought of hatred and anger is like murder in God's eyes. Oh boy, do we need to think in the sense of grace because whatever is not outside the sense of grace in Ephesians 4 and verse 29 is corrupt. And it stops the Holy Spirit in 4.30 of Ephesians from revealing the reality of who we are in Christ with his love that flows through that grace. And so we end up resisting him just like the Jews did in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. They always continually, continuously, areas of constant disorder. I know I should do it, I'm not going to do it. Areas of constantly resisting God. And then reaping what you sow. In Galatians 6 and verse 7. So, they, the whirlwind takes them away as stubble, areas of growth, not growing. And so he takes them away. Maybe he'll offer you everything, the enemy. <laughs> but he uses it to keep you away from him and from reality and from being trained to rule and reign for eternity. To whom will you liken me? Or who will I be equal? In other words, who's equal to God? Is anything equal? Is anything, any blessing, anything, is it, is it equal to God in terms of its value? I mean, anything that he gives us through grace, is that apart from him that we use it for the flesh, does that become equal with him? Does it? No. To whom will you liken me? You know, there are others that said in Psalm 50, verse 21, they thought, and they, they thought certain ways. Even Christians and those that teach things that, aren't, that don't have to do with grace, that don't have to do with Christ, and they think that, they're all, that God is altogether like them. <laughs> they reduce God down, his full thought of Christ, to reduce it down to their thinking, and they think they're equal with God. That's work system. That's a caste system has nothing to do with God's thoughts. All are guilty. All became need, in need of him in Romans 3 and verse 19. To whom will you liken me or whom will I be equal with, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. Stop living on the earth. Christians, set your mind in Colossians 3, 2, on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? Because as far as this earth and what goes on here, you die to it in Colossians 3 and verse 3. You're dead. And you know what a dead person does experientially? A dead Christian, he goes back with other dead ones. And they, they don't even have to be born again. They have to be just like the areas that he now functions in or she functions in. You know, misery loves company. Lift up your eyes on high and behold, who created these things that you make into idols that you could, potentially any of us, that brings out their host by number. You know, he calls them all by name and you can't count them. He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might and power and strength for, for that he is strong in power. Not one fails. Not one thought about who we are in Christ and who he's made us to be fails. His love never fails. In 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 8, it never fades, ever. It never changes in its beauty. Not one fails. Verse 27, 
then why do you say, oh, Jacob, Jacob, he's speaking. You know, there's times God has to speak because we're functioning in our Jacob nature. What is a Jacob nature? Con man, manipulator, liar, pretends. <laughs> That's the flesh in all of us, by the way. Pretender. Jacob, why do you say, Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hid from the Lord. I think I can function in these areas of disobedience. Of course, I don't want anyone else to know. Come on, stop. You don't think people, Christians, that walk in the light, and if they do walk in the light, they don't judge, but they can see. Don't think so. Areas of disobedience, known disobedience. Come on. Jeez. I got a hoard in case God doesn't come through. Hmm, God, great plan. A lot of trust there. God, you're trusting more what you can hoard than God himself. That becomes your little, and that would become my little image. Well, very interesting. Why do you say and speak, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from God? I can just, eh, I can continue to live in this little area of disobedience. It's not so bad. <laughs> and we do it in the light of his presence in Psalm 90, verse 8. And then we don't understand why we don't have peace. You know, in Psalm 10, verse 4, it says and that God is not in all their thoughts. Now, if you read that, you might think that maybe he's in some and maybe he's not. No, in the flesh, God is not in any thought. Did you know that? Any plan that doesn't have to do with his plan, okay, is the flesh. That's in us that we're not of in Romans 8, 9. But thank God he makes this known. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Some don't know because they never heard. But God's redeeming the time. Because faith comes by hearing, dependence, learning it on a continual basis in Romans 10 and verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The preaching of messages is what the original says. And how will they hear in Romans 10, 14 and 15 without a preacher? And a preacher means God picks and chooses those that he will teach you through specifically. And it does not have to do with your choice. It has to do with his choice. Very interesting. Think of the choices that people make when they refuse the package that God wants to reveal himself through. <laughs> they're, going to do it, they're going to end up doing it themselves or pick the wrong ones to do it. Have you not known, have you not heard that the eternal God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not? Why do we faint? Because we don't pray. Why don't we pray? Because we don't want to depend upon God for certain things. Men should always pray and not faint, Luke 18, 1. I wish men everywhere, men, masculine men, 1 Timothy 2, 8, will lift up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. Faint, neither is weary, and there is no searching of his understanding. Try searching, try making things make sense as a believer without the sense of grace, without humility, and God revealing those things to you. Try and figure it out. I know a bunch of young men in a certain area that are trying to do that right now. He gives power to the faint and to them that have no mighty increases strength. Even the youths will faint and be weary. Notice that? Even young people will faint and be weary and the young men will utterly fall. Can't fall from your position, but certainly in the experience. But, Separated from all that, they that wait, trust, 
trust, be occupied with him. That wait upon the Lord will what? Renew, change what they thought their strength was. In Psalm 102 and verse 23, he weakens our strength. Do we really have strength? No, it's weak areas of lust patterns that we call strength, where we don't need him, where he's not invited. He weakens our strength and shortens our days in that way. Thank God for that. But they that wait upon the Lord will change their strength, which isn't strength, and receive the strength. Let the weak say in Joel 3.10 and 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, let the weak say, I am what? Strong, but he has to make us weak. Helpless and hopeless in ourself or anybody else. Renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. This is a prayer life. Proper view. Positional truth. They will run and they will not be weary. They'll run the race in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, because they look away from all that would distract unto Jesus, who's in the race with them, and he's leading them in this race. But here's the toughest one. They will walk in every day, discipline, every single day, and what is considered by many to be very mundane. They will walk and not faint. That's the areas where we faint in. The everyday things where those everyday things are teaching us absolute dependence, complete dependence upon him and never losing the sense of grace. And when we do, he's ready and available for us with his love to shed abroad on us. And Father, we thank you and praise you for your precious word this morning. Thank you for your counsel. In Jesus' name, amen.